Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. G, 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 take me away. G, 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 take me today. Welcome to episode 43. This week we talked to actor and comedian Griffin Newman. Griffin was on the show Vinyl. He played the character named Casper. So we get to talk to him and hear about working with Martin Scorsese on set. And we hear about all kinds of other things, about growing up being an actor. He was so young when he started learning improv and camp as a kid. We're going to hear some interesting stories, and we had a fun time talking about it. Lots of laughs. This was really fun. I really enjoyed myself, and I hope you do, too. I'm Gary Levitt. Enjoy the conversation with me, Matt Kaplan, and Griffin Newman. There was a baby in the cage with those birds, so. Got to take them both out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You got enough slack there? I think we're, oh. There's a loop right under there. Yeah, there we go. That's better. Cool. Okay. Cool. Wow, all right. Well, I was looking at your IMDB page. Uh-huh. 44 credits. Yeah. Really? Wow, I ha- I didn't count it. That's that does sound impressive. <laughs> <laughs> it sure like does, that. right? Yeah, a lot of them are student films. I should mention, mm-hmm. which isn't to uh, d- degrade the um, quality of the films because some of them turned out very well. But the fact that I got those jobs was mostly that I uh, was on Craigslist at that time. Really? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, when I started, I I dropped out of college to sort of try pursuing all of this. So wait, you dropped out of college to just peruse Craigslist? To peruse Craigslist, yeah. And I just was <laughs> like, let me see what people need. And then I filled those spots. Um, no, I, I dropped out of college to try to you know, pursue comedy and acting and all that. And my whole strategy when I dropped out was like, okay, you're in New York City. You know, like a couple of the biggest film schools mm-hmm. in the world here. There are going to be a lot of student films that, are, that need to get made. So I just went on to, you know, Craigslist and Actors Access and all these sort of sites like that where people post up casting notices yeah. where they don't have money to look for people right. or hire people and they don't have like outreach abilities. And I just look for anyone who was looking for like, that was sort of my big strategic thing is like I, I look and sound young for my age. And so I was 19 but I looked like I was maybe like 15. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this is my like competitive advantage. So you knew right from that age that you wanted to be an actor? Uh, when I was 19? Yeah, or before that? Uh, there was a lot of back and forth before that. I had sort of, I'd spent my life up until then, the first 19 years of my life uh, going back and forth on whether or not I wanted to. And then when I was 19, I was in college 
And I decided like, oh, I think I want to do this and I want to give this a shot. So I dropped out and was like, okay, I look like I'm 15. I might be able to get jobs because people need people who are above legal working age. Mm -hmm. Right. But look 15. And then just started looking online for like short films that needed teenagers. Had you done acting before that? Yeah. So I, um, I, I, I always like hesitate when I have to explain this because it's just, it's so fucking, it makes me sound like the worst, like a character from a young adult novel. I, I started, uh, doing stand up when I was 10. Whoa. Yeah. There's this, I grew up in New York City. It was all like serial material. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Count Chocula. Yeah, yeah. That was a fucking slamming booberry hard. Uh, no, it, God. I, um, there's this woman in New York City uh, named Joan Grossman who runs this program called Kids in Comedy, and she started, I guess, in the late... Did you grow up in New York City? I grew up in New York City, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, she started in like the mid to late 90s. And, um, it was, uh, she, she had this idea. I don't know where the idea came from cause she didn't have a background in comedy, but to, uh, curate like children mm-hmm. doing stand up, and then would get like a club. It started at Caroline's and she would book Caroline's and then later Gotham. And then later when Gotham moved the later place of Gotham, but she had no comedy background I, to the best of my knowledge. No, she just thought kids were funny. Yeah, I guess. And she would book these clubs on like Sunday afternoons when they weren't going to do a show. Right. And then would uh, just curate like 10 kids doing stand up. And when I was a kid, it got like a decent amount of coverage as like this weird like novelty thing. Mm -hmm. And I loved uh, comedy and movies and plays and all that sort of stuff. In my mind's eye, I like wanted to be doing something like that when I was like three, you know? I mean, it just felt like. I just, like, I I grew up essentially on The Muppet Show because my parents are very uh, overprotective in terms of what I could watch. The Muppet Show was the main thing I watched. Right. And that sort of presentation of, like, show business. Yeah. Where it's, like, a bunch of weirdos and they're putting Mm -hmm. on a show together. And the sort of, like, backstage, onstage dynamic. Mm -hmm. And kind of theatrical, like, play theatrical. Yeah, yeah. But the the whole idea there that, like, that show uh, demystified... (laughs) the idea of being a performer for me at a very young age, even though it was the most fictional show in the world because they're (laughs) fucking puppets, you know? Right, right. But because you'd see Kermit stressing out and then you'd see him go on stage and introduce the act Mm -hmm. and they were showing you these characters as performers and as people, but also like whoever the special guest star was. It was like, okay, I know Julie Andrews, but then this is presenting the backstage version of Julie Andrews and all this sort of stuff. So that I I just, you know... It kind of lifts the veil a little bit. It felt like it lifted the veil in this very f- fictionalized heightened way yeah. it felt like the veil had been lifted to the idea of it but if they really wanted to they would have showed the hand up kermit's ass the guy. <laughs> yeah right that was that's the three layers right, you know yeah. you go with the puppet on stage the puppet backstage and then the hand up the ass like, mommy the- why won't they show that guy with the hand up his ass <laughs> that's what it was i mean i i knew like i understood very early on because i was also a kid who would like i'd want to know how things were made and how they got done mm-hmm. so i for a very young age became like very into puppetry and understanding and knew the names of the guys the the handsome puppeteers not just handsome but the other guys and everything uh-huh. um anyway i'm working on like a thousand side Cur- curious here. young kid huh i was very curious yeah, yeah. and can i mostly was like yeah reading books about puppetry or about filmmaking or about special effects give us and stuff can you give us one of your jokes from your 10 year old act yeah i can so <laughs> so so i gotta lead into this so you okay. understand where right. this joke was coming from so um 
my parents, I wanted to be doing stuff. My parents didn't want me to because, uh, I, I don't know. I think they were frightened by all the stories you hear about stage kids and all of that. And yes. they were like, he still wants to do this when he's older, he can do it, but they didn't really want me doing stuff. And these shows, the kids and comedy shows, were what they were called, were unpaid. So it sort of just felt like, I guess to them, it was like, oh, it's as if he's doing like soccer on the weekends, mm-hmm. right? which I was and I hated. You know, I was like <laughs> terrible at. And my brother was really athletic. And I think they were like, okay, this is his outlet. Like if he does stand up once a month on a Sunday afternoon for a crowd of parents, it's not really like show business in a big way. It's sort right. of this insulated thing. He's not getting much exercise, but at least he's getting out there. Well, they still didn't let me quit. I guess maybe when I started doing stand by that time, I quit Little League and oh, soccer okay, good, and yeah. stuff. But I, I hated those things so much. But they... Um, so, so I started doing these shows. You have to... They do workshops once a month mm-hmm. that were um, for the kids who were on sort of the main cast to try out new material and yeah. for new kids to like audition. So I went to those and I had watched a lot of stand-up from a young age. So I sort of got stand-up. I mean, I, I wouldn't stand behind what I did today, but like... Did, she, did this woman teach you like the structure of her jokes set up from this Well, that's line? the thing. I think I kind of had some sense of that. I'm not saying they were good jokes. Yeah, well, you're 10 years old. Right, but yeah. like I did... I, I was this curious kid who analyzed everything very thoroughly. And I think, you know, I mean, Fozzie Bear is kind of a deconstruction of stand-up. Because most Fozzie Bear routines are about the fact that the bit doesn't work. Uh-huh. You know, so it made me figure out like, okay, so what should be working here? What's trying to work? And then I was really into Steve Martin, who's the same sort of thing. It's like right, he's yeah. this purposefully shitty comedian. Yeah. And so I felt like I kind of got like, okay, this is sort of how a joke. If if not intellectually, I could explain it. I sort of understood the rhythms of like mm-hmm. how a joke should sound to some basic sense. And then my dad sort of like helped me. I think when he was like, that doesn't make sense, he'd sort of clarify for me. But anyway, my dad... Would but it's, work- a, it's a very cartoonish sort of inspiration. Yeah, yeah, It's not like you're watching so. George Carlin. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I'm mean, sure, you know, I probably saw a sanitized, like, edited George Carlin. I mean, I watched Comedy Central or whatever. But, but like, even, like, Fozzie and the thing that Steve Martin were doing, it was kind of a classic yes. stand-up comedian it was, yeah. set-up delivery sort yeah, of Yeah, it's like a yeah. postmodern version of a vaudeville type right. of guy. It's the vaudeville sensibility with this sense of failure like right. injected into right. it which it that, turns out that's the joke for the audience right exactly which is now sort of more what i tried to do with Santa. but at the time what i did was um i my dad would sort of you know work on this stuff with me and it was this was sort of a bonding thing with my dad because my dad would coach my brother's teams mm-hmm. and that would be like okay they have this thing going on my dad would work late during the week so i wouldn't get to spend that much time with him and then sunday afternoons it was like the weekend um, you know, and it was like the boys get to spend time together. My brother and I, and my dad would get to spend time together. Right. Uh, Sunday afternoon, he would watch all the like political shows. Mm. So like Meet the Press and the McLaughlin Group and David Brinkley and like all those sort of shows that were on like PBS. Well, you're using some of that with your ten, yes. ten-year-old yes. So political... that's the joke. That's awesome. what, what I need to explain to set up the joke. <laughs> okay. Was when I wanted to like bond with my dad on Saturday, Sunday afternoons, I'd have to watch these shows with him. Mm-hmm. And then make jokes. And I didn't understand the political concepts they were talking about, but I could understand sort of like the characters, Mm. you know? Yeah. Like, okay, Bill Clinton's lying, or like this is happening. You know, the broad strokes of like the sort of like very surfacey Mad Magazine 
take on each politician right as a person like dan quayle doesn't have to spell potato you know right, right. <laughs> whatever the sort of like meme jokey thing was about each one and so i would make those jokes about that to entertain my dad so then when it was like oh okay go to this workshop audition and be like a 10 year old stamp comedian i just told all these jokes that my dad found funny which right. were me making fun of politicians you're seeing the cartoonist side of it yeah. It's almost like The Simpsons, how I've watched Simpsons with kids yeah. before, like my nephew, for example, and they'll laugh at totally different stuff. Yes. Right. The car- the cartoon stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the sillier stuff. Right. Right. Um, so I was doing that, and they weren't, you know, a, a, a cutting political satire, you know, and they weren't <laughs> insightful jokes, but they were jokes about Jesse Jackson, which uh-huh. seemed really weird coming out of a 10-year-old. Right. Um, cause I was like, yeah, tiny. I was like probably like four foot one mm-hmm. and I had like a total helium voice and I'd get on stage <laughs> and just make jokes about politicians pretty much. I mean, I had that and then I had, um, what were my main bits? I did a lot of act outs. Yeah. Do I, you remember your opener or closer? Yeah. I mean, I, my opener was, it was an extended bit. It was sort of a refillable bit that was, um, uh, uh, Jesse the Body Ventura had just run for uh, governor, governor or had yeah. won I think he'd just been elected uh-huh. and part of his campaign was that he I mean this this is the best uh, sort of uh, explanation of what my joke style was at the time because it's the complete intersection between like the cartoon kid stuff and um, the, this political thing I was harping on but um, uh, I, I his campaign ads at the time were uh, using wrestling action figures. Right. That was the ad that got him sort of elected because it was like this really buzzy ad was like he had like a WWF Jesse Ventura action figure. Right. And he would have him like slamming delegates or whatever it was. You know, it was like two kids playing with an action figure and saying like... Was that a real ad? That was a real ad. Wow. And it was like, he'll fight for healthcare. And yeah. it, like the action figure would slam down on the table or whatever it was, right? <laughs> and that was like a big thing. It got him like a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And... uh so my and then they end up making the action figure. That was the thing. They made this like Senator Jesse Ventura action figure with him in the suit right. off of the commercial. So my opening bit was I was like, you know, I was in a toy store the other day, which is like a, you know, a great opener yep. when you're ten. Yeah. <laughs> you can't really do that as much when you're like <laughs> try that now, yeah. people are like, uh oh. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I was in a toy store the other day and people were like, What the fuck? But I, I was yeah, in a toy store there and I saw they had Jesse Body Ventura action figure. It made me wonder what would it be like if other politicians had action figures and so the bit was i would list like 10 different politicians and what their like feature would be right you know so it was like uh 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 what was it um uh electronic george bush with dick cheney remote control all right you know that kind of like (laughs) slam oh i slammed him (laughs) dick cheney's in control you know right right that sort of thing um what are the other ones god i'm trying to remember now uh, I mean, the, the the Hillary Clinton one was um, uh, Hillary Clinton doll. Uh, say something about yourself, like I'm black or I'm Jewish, and she'll say, "So am I." Right, right. <laughs> Anything to please. Still, yeah. that joke still works. Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, but I did that. I had a bit that was like, um, you know, re- real sharp, real hard hitting. Was a drug commercial. Was a fake drug commercial where mm-hmm. the bit was just how many side effects there were. You know. So did you keep at it after you were doing it at 10? And what did you enjoy doing it? I enjoyed doing it, yeah. There was a long break. I did it, I'd say, for like three years maybe. I did it for maybe 10 to 13. Wow. 
and then I um, I got I got onto that sort of show, and I did it, you know, like once a month, twelve times a year for like three years. Okay. And um, I hit thirteen, and like puberty hits, and I start feeling rebellious about everything. And it wasn't I didn't like comedy anymore, but I like hated being in this like kids comedy thing. Right. And it also was like. Well, what's the age limit of the kids comedy thing? It was it was until the end of high school. I mean, there were eighteen okay. year olds in the group. Right. But it definitely, like, you know, um, it's uh, most people were doing, like, jokes about parents, mm-hmm. jokes yep. about homework, you know, jokes about school, whatever. And I was doing, like, more pop culture-y stuff. Mm-hmm. So that, I did the drug commercial. I did this whole long bit that was, um, what, it was Martha Stewart as a professional wrestler. And so it was, like, Martha Stewart threatening how she was going to destroy people but making it into arts and crafts. Had you heard of improv at this time? Um, I hadn't. I don't okay. think I had. Yeah, no exposure to it at the no time. No exposure to yeah. it at the time. But I was mostly doing like act outs. I didn't have that many like one liners. It was mm-hmm. sort of like I'd set up a thing and then I'd act out the whole long thing, and I'd set up the next thing. I'd do a whole long thing. Um, so I did that for like three years, and then it was like you know I was performing for mostly like there were older kids in the group, but the audience was pretty young. No, are are you sure that you wanted to be a stand up comic, or did you just want to be in front of people? Did you want to just be performing? Yeah, I think it was kind of nebulous at that point. I think mm-hmm. I just liked the idea of all of it. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, when I would see stand-ups on TV, it's that seemed the most like magic to me. Uh-huh. It's like, oh, one person can get up there. Right. And it seems like they're just talking. And what? Right, and it seems so natural. It seems like it's just a conversation. It's off the top easy. of their head, and everyone's paying attention, and people are laughing regularly. Like, that seems crazy. Were you attracted to it because of the autonomy of it, that just one person can get up? Um, I guess so, but it also might have been, I mean, the school I was going to at the time didn't do plays, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, really? No plays? So we like, I didn't have an outlet to perform at all. Right. And I think shortly after that, my parents found like some sort of weekend theater group where we put on a play, you know, four months of rehearsal and we put on one thing. Because it is an odd thing to choose. I could understand a 10 years old wanting to be an actor. Yeah. But... It felt like, I, I don't know, it just felt like the one thing I could do because all I needed to do was show up. Now, was it, was it exposed to you? How, like, how did you hear about this kids in comedy thing? They got a fair amount of press. I mean, just because it was such a weird, anomalous thing at the time. I mean, it's still going on. It's been going on, I guess, for like 20 years now. Same woman running it? Yeah. So you weren't seeking it out. It, it just came into your world. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, I, I mean, I feel like there were articles about it. Mm-hmm. And isn't it amazing? I think about this a lot, how one thing that like if one person says one thing to you when you're young. Yeah. Hey, you should be a stand up comedian. That could change your whole project trajectory. Yeah. I mean, it really was like, like if you didn't come across, if she didn't get all that press for her thing, yeah. you might have done something totally different. I think, you know, we got, we used to get Time Out New York, mm-hmm. and they had the kids section that was like things to do for kids. Right. And I feel like it got written up there a couple times. I might have seen it written up in some other places too. But how many parents get Time Out New York in there? Right, right. I mean, it was all like luck, and that I was a kid who would read through a magazine meant for adults. Like, even the kids right. section was written as an adult for your guide kids. for what your kids should do, and I would read through everything. Right. And then I'd also read through the comedy section, and I mm-hmm. knew I couldn't go to any of those shows because they were at like clubs. Right. But I'd be interested in seeing like who was playing Caroline's that week. I'd so, look at the little, you know, that Caroline's bar they yeah, always have yeah. that's like, Still here's there. the next six acts. Yeah. And I'd look at that and be like, okay, I recognize that guy from TV. She was on a sitcom, you know? Mm. And it's all led to what you're doing now. Meanwhile, is your brother a professional athlete? 
He's not. He's maybe trying to go into. Uh, I, I think he maybe wants to be a sports manager. Oh, okay. So his, yeah, his, or like uh, a journalist. He's still in that world. Okay. He just so graduated. Interesting so that 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 both of you found some kind of yeah. path at that age. Yeah, but yeah, I I feel like I read just one day they were doing one of those shows, and I said yeah. to my dad, I'd like to go see this. And I went with my dad to the show. We saw an evening or an afternoon of like ten kids doing stand up. Right. And, you know, they were all maybe older than me, but only a little bit older than me. I think when I joined, I was maybe the youngest, but then there were soon younger kids than me. But you did have the full Time Out New York magazine. Yeah. So, of all the sections, that caught you. That caught me. I said, I'd like to go see this. I went with my dad, and at the end, they said, if you're interested in trying to perform, Mm -hmm. we do once a month a workshop. And I said to my dad, like, I think I want to do that. Mm -hmm. And it was, if you're asking, you know, I mean, I think I went to it. I'd go to a lot of shows, you know, with my parents on the weekends. And I I was into magic. I'd go see magicians. Right. Because, yeah, usually kids, and I was too, into magic at that age. Right. And I, like, had a whole magic kit, and I tried to do it. I was never very good at it. Good thing they didn't get the Village Voice, because you would have been on the back page and be like, I think I want to be a male (laughs) prostitute. (laughs) have you a professional escort (laughs) um but you know i I think there was just a feeling of like i would see people doing magic i go that looks awesome i want to do that i'd get the magic hit and Mm -hmm. then i try to perform magic tricks for my friends and i'd be like okay i'm not great at this right even at a young age i was like i like doing this but i don't think i'm great at this but it's a nice stepping stone to stand up because it's getting it's performing in front of people by yourself yeah but you don't need to write any material right i would do a lot of that i would sort of like volunteer to perform at other kids birthday parties mm. you know and i would just be like doing oh ma- doing magic or i do like a puppet show or whatever it was i just really wanted to be performing yes yeah, i might sort be, of way yeah. i might be making this assumption and i'm just meeting you today for yeah. the first time but I do get the impression that you're just a natural performer, like you just wanted to be performing in some aspect. I think so. I mean, you know, not not saying that I'm naturally talented at performing, but I think I always naturally had that impulse. I think what I'm saying is that your dad didn't give you enough attention as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I think I mean I think a lot of it comes from the fact that I wasn't good at sports and that was like the thing that he knew how to connect with. Well, that's the classic yeah. example, the classic recipe for cuz here we are we're on you know, I do stand up and we're on right. stage seeking the approval of strangers. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. classic recipe for a lot of performers in general is supportive mother. Yeah. And dad that wouldn't give them enough love or attention. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And my dad, you know, is a loving guy and was an attentive guy, is still an attentive guy. But, like, you know, he loves sports. That's his favorite thing. I was the firstborn son. And then I couldn't catch a ball. Yeah. And then my brother was born three years later. And he, you know, not from the moment he stepped out of the womb, but like pretty <laughs> shortly thereafter, he's also like a five foot six Jew like me. Right when his arms come out of the womb, your dad's like, catch. And he caught it. <laughs> One hand. Yeah. Um, you, you totally missed. He's like, put him back. Get but him he back is. In. I mean, for, you know, he's a, a weirdly athletic guy. Yeah. Like he just has some sort of preternatural ability. And he is, you know, he's a, he's a short white dude. So like he wasn't going to go pro. Right. But he always just sort of had ability. Any sport he tried to do, he was really good at. He was exceptionally good at. And um, I, I think my dad liked comedy a lot. Like, I knew that. Mm. Oh, you so know? we're getting somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And I think, and it was connected to the fact that if I made these jokes about politicians when my dad was watching TV, then he would sort of recognize me. He right, noticed me. It was bonding. Yeah. In that time out in New York, there's also theater there's movies there's all kinds of stuff and i'd look through all of that yeah but you chose stand-up comedy of all things yeah it always just sort of was was appealing to me was your dad into stand-ups especially at that point yeah yeah i don't know if especially at that point but he does i mean he really likes comedy yeah and he likes stand-up a lot i mean his his 
heyday of interest in stand-up might have been a little before I was born. Mm-hmm. You know, when he was a bachelor and he could go to shows a lot. Right. But he always told me stories of he saw most of the greats, like, doing stand-up. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think he was a comedy nerd, as you would define it today, but he was a guy who liked comedy a lot more than the average person. I don't think it was such a big thing back then. No. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it, also people used to just be able to be interested in something without being labeled a nerd or yes, a geek of it. You yes. could just, like, really like comedy. <laughs> but there was a thing, I mean, you joked about it earlier, but, like, even at a young age when I was too young to necessarily watch George Carlin routines, yeah. I had a sense of, like, George Carlin's important, because I think my dad sort of was just, like he's one of the best comedians of all time. Richard Pryor is one of the best comedians of all time. You know? Right. Even if I was mostly seeing them just do little things and like, okay, Superman 4 or like, George Carlin's on Thomas the Tank Engine, you know? (laughs) I would know, he'd sort of explain to me like, that guy's an incredible stand-up comedian. But a 10-year-old brain can't understand why. You could watch Richard Pryor or George Carlin, you wouldn't understand. I wouldn't get it, but I was sort of raised with the sense of a... um, appreciation you know not for the work that i hadn't seen yet but just uh what's the word i'm looking for of respect for their sort of legacy yeah of what they were and steve martin definitely was like a big thing we would watch together we'd Mm. watch steve martin we'd watch his movies we'd watch like steve martin live the old stand-up specials i could see that appealing to a 10 year old much more than george carlin for sure Yeah, yeah yeah and it is like um there's that thing, I mean, you know, my dad would go take my brother and I to see movies, and it's like, okay, we'd find something funny, he wouldn't. You know, if it was a kid's movie, right? he wouldn't necessarily find it funny. But if we were all watching Steve Martin together, we were all laughing. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it was like, okay, he respects that in the same way that he respects if my brother can make a goal. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that he's not making a goal on the same level that an adult soccer player right. makes a goal. Would your dad come to your stand-up shows? Yeah, he'd come every week, yeah. And uh, every every month, every time I did one. Right. And we would, I mean, he was sort of my coach for that. I mean, he wasn't writing material or whatever, but the same way he sort of like coached my brother with soccer, we would go to, I really liked Taco Bell. And so that was like the treat was like when I had a show, we'd go to Taco Bell for lunch before that. And we'd sit down with a notebook and he'd be like, so what do you want to do? And I would like tell him the jokes I was planning on doing that day. Cool. And I would sort of run them by him as like a sounding board. And then he would afterwards like tell me what he thought went well. So that was your way of bonding with your dad as well. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. But I do. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a combination of all these things we're talking about. You know, I don't remember, um, uh, a time in my life where I didn't sort of have that impulse to perform in some way. Mm-hmm. And there was that thing even just of like, you know, I had the little like wooden puppet theater in my bedroom mm-hmm. and I would just do puppet shows for like my parents before I would do them at birthday parties for other people. Yeah. Well, you're getting a lot of uh, acting roles, it seems. In, now, yeah, yeah. You're in 10 episodes of vinyl? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. saw that. Now, that's so different than stand up, for example. Yeah. Because there's no immediate feedback. Uh, yeah, yeah, and especially with vinyl. I mean, I'm in most of the season. I I, I shot 10 episodes. I don't know if I'm in all 10 because mm-hmm. the cuts and whatever. Yeah. Uh, I'm credited as being in all 10, but I, I don't know. I haven't seen the whole season yet. Uh, it's easy to... Why haven't you watched the whole season? Is it hard because you're in it? or It's just... a little hard because I'm in it, although I'm not in it that much. I also just embarrassingly uh, am bad at keeping up with TV. Yeah. And when other shows were coming on, I was like, well, I've read all the scripts. I know what happened. So I can like still talk to people about what happened on last week's final of right, watching right. it, which is just sort of a lazy out. I will watch it all at some point. I've seen like half the season. Yeah. But... um. Now, how did that come about? Because that was a very well-publicized, because you got Martin Scorsese and yeah. Mick Jagger. Yeah. Um, that was... Uh, that show had sort of been in the works for like a, a long, long time. Because mm-hmm. I think maybe 
15 years ago. Uh, yeah. Scorsese and Jagger had sort of started brainstorming about doing something about the music industry uh-huh. from the label side of things. But at that point, it was a movie. Were they both at one of your stand-up shows when you yeah, were 10? exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's been waiting for you to yeah. grow up. Uh, no, they, they, we can't come out with it now. We got to wait 15 wait. years. This guy's still, uh, he's incubating. Uh, he's not green yet. Um, or he's too green. Uh, they, um, they, they had had this sort of idea for a long time and over... A decade or so, they had different writers come on, and at some point, I think about five or six years ago, they decided, like, maybe this makes more sense as a TV show, and mm-hmm. so it went through a couple different permutations, but I think the first time I auditioned for it was, like, four years ago, maybe? Mm-hmm. For the same role? No, it shifted, and the script was very different at that point in time, but they always, there was a young sort of record executive, a, a guy who was sort of green and was, you know fresh-faced and and was coming into this world is that the role I, i've never that's seen not the role sh- i got no no, okay. no. i've never um, seen the show so yeah 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 okay. they um th- th- the script changed a lot from that point but i auditioned then and then i thought i did pretty well never heard anything back and, mm-hmm. you know that happens and you just go like oh i guess someday i'm gonna see the poster into another guy or whatever no news is. is bad news yeah yeah <laughs> honestly in acting yeah 100 percent. and then like a year later i got an audition that was a different project with a different name and then i read the script and i was like this feels a lot like that thing i read a year ago and i was like oh they rewrote it they're trying to make it now you know Uh it just kept on not getting off the ground so i think i auditioned like two times maybe before it actually happened and the third time like a third year later they um brought me in for a similar kind of role Mm -hmm. i auditioned for that i think twice what role do you play on it i played just sort of one of the guys in the office you know filling out the office um, but there was this one uh, main young male uh, executive who's played by Jack Quaid on the show. And I did for that part like two times. And then they called me back in and they said like, you know, so we cast that part. We really liked you and we need a couple more people in the office. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really have the parts written yet, but we know we need a couple more people. Yeah. And so they asked us to bring in our favorite people that we liked for other roles to try to work stuff out. So here's like placeholder sides. And they gave me like a page of dialogue that was sort of like... Now, how much of it did they like your acting or did they just get a, a good feeling from you as a person that they, as someone they'd want to work with? I, I think it's probably a combination of both, especially with something like that part in particular, mm-hmm. because there wasn't really a distinct role there yet. Right. Yeah, that's they why like, I'm like, yeah. there's no role, but they know that they want to work with you. How does that happen? Did you just click with them in the audition? I think so. I mean, I think they liked me as an actor. I mean, the thing she told me later was in one of the auditions I had had for the, for the larger role, I walked in and I had a cough drop in my mouth. I'm like really into cough drops. Mm-hmm. And I had a cough drop in my mouth. And then like halfway through the scene, I realized that I'd forgotten to like, I usually like chew it up or, you know, throw it out in the garbage before I go into the audition. Yeah. And I realized I'd forgotten to do that. So in between when I didn't have a line, when the reader had her line, I tried to chew the cough drop and I choked on it. <laughs> and then I like sort of just like kept going. Yeah. Post choke and like saying the rest of the dialogue. They're like, he's turning green again. <laughs> but she thought it was like, cause the scene was, uh, this guy being intimidated in like a job interview. Oh, she took it oh. as a character choice. Yeah. Ooh. And I was like, uh, she was like, that was great the way you did like the mm. choking thing. And I was like, oh, no, that's actually like I just chewed on the collar. Did you, you tell her that? I, yeah, I did tell her that because I don't like lying. Right. Uh, and she was like, but still, you like recovered from it well? Like, that's like impressive. And she kind of kept saying like that cough drop moment was like really appealing that you like, 
you know, that you didn't let that fuck you up and you kept going with the yeah. scene anyway. Um, and I think it is a combination of like, you know, a lot of auditions, I, I always try to, when I go into auditions, like talk to the people a little before we get into the scene, mm -hmm. just because I think if they can like throw the extra gold star on top of it of being like, oh, he doesn't seem like he's going to be difficult to work with. Right. Because that's a big thing, especially if you're a total unknown guy like I am. Like, yeah. It's not worth the hassle if the guy comes in with an attitude, you know? Right. Some people go in in character. Yeah. I mean, I, I've maybe done that once or twice when it was like a thing that was so far removed from who I was. Yeah. That I was like, if I don't spend like two hours trying to get into it, I'm afraid I won't be able to click into it that fast. Right. Just if it's like, when I was starting out and it was like, okay, you have to play like, you know, a fucking bruiser or whatever. And it's like, okay, I'm not a tough guy. Right. I'm not going to walk 19, in. 19. I haven't done these jobs or whatever. I need to sort of like spend a day trying to get into it or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and in that situation, would you walk in as a tough guy? I'd so, I mean, I wouldn't pretend that Just I was tough. Just kick the door open. Yeah. I wouldn't pretend that I was tough, but I'd maybe walk in already with sort of like the physicality of the voice that I'd been working on. Right. Not right. pretending that's who I was. Right. But just sort of like a rolling practice into the is audition. That, is that what sense. you did when you came here? You kind of had that tough guy thing? When yeah, you exactly. Here? I came yeah, in like a bruiser and I asked if yeah. I could go to the bathroom yeah. so I washed blood off my knuckles. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I sort of, they brought me in and it was, you know, these sort of makeshift pages where they didn't really have a part yet and they said, we're going to need a couple more guys and then they said to me like, you know, we really like you, we're going to try to make it work, we'll see. And then they got back to me like a month after that and told me if I'd been cast and then the couple of months between when I got cast and when the thing got shot they added a couple lines and it felt like there was a little more of a character there they actually did a lot of sort of group stuff so when the whole cast had been put together there was like um they got like a gym at like the at the um 92nd street y or something like uh -huh. that it was like some gym uptown yeah and it was just the whole cast and a bunch of pizza and wine and did you get like, to meet uh mick jagger or martin scorsese i met scorsese because he directed the pilot jagger i didn't meet but he was around but it's like i i'm very much one of those people where it's like i see mick jagger standing around and everyone else is introducing themselves to him and i'm yeah. like well, everyone introduces themselves to that guy like i'm doing him a favor if i don't so if you don't introduce yourself. If I don't yourself. introduce myself, I'm giving him a break. Right. He doesn't need to meet me. You right, know? Yeah. I'm always like very sheepish in that. But Scorsese was directed the pilot, which I was in. So, so I, he directed you. Yeah, which is crazy. Uh, and it's just like, okay, so that's, I have that for the rest of my life. You yeah, know, you, like no matter what, I have that as an experience. So, so the, the, the characters that were you and others that were created to fill out the office, yeah. they were somewhat basing this character upon you and, and just kind of how you are, how you act, how you talk. I think um, they sort of write, they wrote them to our strengths. I think that's great. I think it's a great yeah. compliment as a writer that they were using what, what you're best at and, and bringing that to the character. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I did think uh, that makes sense why you were choking on a cough drop in every scene. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but that was for the original yeah, right. That was for the original guy who was more sort of nervous. I ended up playing this sort of more sarcastic uh, kind of guy, the sort of like negative dark cloud Mm. dude in the office the idea of this dude being like very young and still seemingly very cynical right about everything <laughs> he's an old soul but an old jaded cynical soul right, right. and just sort of slumped over <laughs> yeah. and sad tacky and all of that sort of stuff um 
So is is the show has it been renewed? Is it going forward? Are you part it of has, it still? Yeah, I mean, so I did the first season. I have a very small part, but I sort of exist in the tapestry throughout mm-hmm. the season as a dude chain smoking. You know, if they need to make the boss look impressive, I'm someone he can yell at. Right. Uh-huh. If they need me to say something's going wrong at the label to or report sm- the latest ratings or whatever. Uh, were you smoking those? Big cigarettes? Yeah, yeah. So they were like marshmallows and like rose petals and like oh, really? some weird uh, uh, recipe. But I had never smoked a cigarette before in my life. So when I got the part, I bought like a bunch of packs of those fake cigarettes. I yeah. got like, which are really expensive, but the ones, I mean, I guess they're maybe only incrementally more expensive than cigarettes, which are expensive to begin with. Right. But I got the ones that they sort of use on screen and I would like just try to chain smoke these cigarettes so that like... You look natural smoking. So that I I just had the muscle memory of like lighting a cigarette and smoking and didn't look like I was putting too fine a point on it. I mean, you got to inhale it. Yeah. yeah. And, and the example I always throw out is like, I feel like I can always tell when I see actors in movies, not, not all actors. I mean, great actors, I think work enough on it that they overcome this, but like I can tell often when I see actors in movies or TV shows, uh, wearing glasses who don't wear glasses in real life mm-hmm. and they right. make like so much business out of the glasses like right. they're constantly just sort of like touching the glasses and pushing them back up and wiping them off and seeing like it's a full-time job to wear glasses <laughs> right and it's like if you wear glasses you don't even think about it right and if like you're smoking a lot it's not something you think about you're doing six other things while you're smoking because it's just part of your habit so i would sh- chain smoke these fucking like strawberry flavored like marshmallow <laughs> and rose petal cigarettes right and people would ask me on the street if they could bum one and I'd be like, no, I'm a fucking phony. I'm an actor. I'm smoking candy. Like, you right. Know? Yeah. Um, now, if you were casted as, say, a crackhead, would you have bought a bunch of crack and smoked that first? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I had Candy crack. I auditioned to play a crackhead once, and I just drank, like, three Red Bulls. That was my strategy. Nice. <laughs> I feel like I'm jittery enough as a person. Yeah. And anxious enough as a person. That's my strategy. But, yeah, I guess I'd get rose petal crack or whatever it is. So, yeah. the obvious next question is, I mean, you got to work with Martin Scorsese. Yeah. I mean, that's, like, he's one of the top directors of all time. Yeah, yeah. So, you've worked with other directors before that. Yeah. Was working with Scorsese different? Yeah. Did, did you see why he earned his reputation? Yeah, 100%. Uh, and to answer your question, the, the status of vinyl right now is the second season's been picked up, but we're, uh, we'd start shooting... You're in it. ...in the fall. I believe so. It's not 100% mm-hmm. official yet, but it, that's what I believe. There awesome. was a shakeup with sort of the writers and directors, mm-hmm. so we were originally supposed to start about now, and then they changed the whole creative team behind the show. Mm-hmm. And so they started over from square one, and now it's starting up sometime in the fall. So I'm waiting to hear if I'm 100% on board, right. but I think i am um well you never even know until it airs you never know yeah, yeah exactly right yeah you never know but um no it, there was a thing i mean a you know the the thing that everyone says about him which is just like he knows more about movies than anyone else i mean he's mm-hmm. like seen everything he studied everything and he's one of these guys who like loves everything about films Right, And you talk about any movie and he can cite one example of like a great shot or a great performance or a great camera move or whatever it is. He's a huge fan. Of everything. Yeah. He's like an omnivore, you know? Yeah. He just loves movies and he's got this catalog memory, you know, of of everything. Um, And that certainly comes into play. And the fact that, you know, he's internalized all these things and developed his own sort of style and he's got this incredible like fluency in filmmaking. He's got a really strong like cinematic language he knows how to make a movie has structure and all of that but the other thing you just realize with him is like oh the reason why he's like the best filmmaker and why his movies turn out so well is he just makes like this incredible environment on set Mm. and i think a lot of it at this point 
I, I can only speak to working with like you know the now storied iconic right. post academy award martin scorsese i don't know what it was like if you're working on his first five movies right he didn't have that reputation right pre- but, preceding him yes but there definitely is a thing i think if you're working on a set and you're like i'm working for martin scorsese like everyone feels good right it's like this is like big leagues like i'm getting it you know yeah even if i only have one line even if i'm like an intern it's kind of like that thing like uh you could tell a celebrity's in the, in the room even if you don't know yes. the celebrity yeah by the way everyone else is acting yeah and there's you know he hires uh really good people and so you're working with in a lot of the small parts. I mean, you know, I'm I'm like one of the younger dudes around, but like it's his regular costume people and the camera people and all of this. And he just has such a good language with all of them. You see how um, he uses a lot of the same crew. Yeah. Cool. And then when we went to series, the crew changed a bunch because he sort of brought his movie people on to do the pilot and then he didn't direct any of the other episodes. But um, there is just sort of like, there's a lot of no-nonsense, like, hard work happening. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like a... um, In a stressful way? No, that's what was sort of surprising, was everyone just is sort of like on top of it. Mm -hmm. He's very loose. He really likes, like, when mistakes happen, which is maybe why the cough drop thing, you know, (laughs) appealed or whatever. But he likes sort of accidents happening, coming up with stuff in the moment, sort of like improvising, not just in terms of dialogue, but like... I know we were shooting it this way, but what if we just switched over to this and yeah. I shot it from this angle or we cut at this point or whatever it is. He just sort of is constantly experimenting. But in a way, is it maybe limiting for him because no one's going to offer him advice? Like his DP is probably not going to be like, hey, what if we did this? Well, I think that is, um, th- this is what I would say. I mean, the the most direction he ever gave me, and, and, and this is the most, I mean, direction he gave most people. Mm-hmm. He picks, like, at least talking with actors, right? And I saw this happening a bit with Crew, too. I think this is sort of just his basic thing. But he'd come in after a scene, and he'd, like, stand, and he'd look at all of us, and he'd just, like, nod and, like, give a thumbs up. Uh-huh. And yeah. I'd be, like, good? And he'd go, yeah, 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 just keep going. Yeah, try something. Whatever. Like, Martin Scorsese just gave me the thumbs up? Yeah. Yeah. But he's not going, like, that's a masterpiece. It's perfect. Right. He's going, like, that's good. We'll just do some more and see what happens. Had, had, did he give you... A- you must have watched him give people direction. Yeah. Well, I'll give the story that's like amazing. But he, um, that's sort of his basic thing. And I think he does that with Karen people too, where mm-hmm. he's like, do you feel good with that? Is there anything you want to try? I mean, oh, he cool. very openly sort of goes like, he's open to people. Let's input. just try another one, you know? Yeah. And if he doesn't like what you did, he goes, okay, so we have that one. You know, we have that as an option. That's <laughs> we right. have that to delete. Yeah, we have that. Uh, that's good. That's good. So let's try now, you know, but he'll sort of say like, um, we're in this sort of boardroom scene. It's like uh, all the A&R executives for mm-hmm. the label, and it's a bunch of young actors like myself. And you're like, I hope I get to hit someone with a bat in the head. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, and uh, my, my uh, buddy Ephraim, who uh, is on the show, uh, plays one of the other execs, and his he has a line at some point in the scene. It's like a 10-page dialogue scene that's about how hungover he is because he was out the night before drinking with the band, you mm-hmm. know? And then that plays into something later in the scene. And we did a couple takes, and Scorsese just came in, and he went like, I, I, I need something. I need to get like a stronger sense of the fact that you're hungover. Uh, so I, I don't know if it's like a physical thing you want to try, or if you want to try to add in some lines. It could be there at the beginning. It could be there later. I, I mean, I leave it up to you, but I just need some more, a greater sense of the, of the hungover thing. Interesting, yeah. And so he said to him, like, here's what I need out of you. Right. You decide how you give it to me. Right, and then if he didn't get it from the actor, then he would tell the actor exactly. what to do. Right. Yeah. So it's very freeing, and the attitude's like that every single day on set. So you'd think that people were intimidated to suggest stuff, 
And maybe you don't have people as much going up and suggesting things to him, mm-hmm. but he does create an environment where it's like, if you have an impulse, like go with it. See, that's really smart because if you give, if you tell the person what you want to see, like what to do, yeah, telling them what to do before letting them do what's natural to them, yes, you could stack, you could limit their creativity. He corrects you if what you're doing is wrong, right? You know, mm-hmm. and he and if so, he goes, okay, we have that. That's good. Let's try this instead. But he doesn't go, fuck you, stop it. That's bad. It's it's like having a musician record on your song. Yeah, what I'd do when I was recording a lot of music, I'd say, all right, do here's the song. You play what feels natural to you. Yeah. And then I'd let them get their ideas out. And then I'm like, okay, that was, that was great. Will you try my idea now? Yeah, I think he likes being surprised by stuff. Yeah. He likes seeing what someone's first sort of instinct is. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I had this very small part. I only talk in one scene in the pilot, but I was on set for most of like a month. Mm-hmm. Because his thing is like, anytime we're filming in the office, I want every actor who plays someone who works in the office. He wants them there. Because I just don't know. I don't know if on the day something's going to come up. Right. And if we're filming from this angle, then your desk has already been established that you work in this corner. Right. And the boss is over there and he's got big windows. And so maybe there's opportunity for you to be doing something at the desk. And maybe we won't use that shot. Right. Maybe we won't use that scene, you know? But, like, he just sort of wants to have all the pieces in play. The word they kept on talking about was that he'd, like, uh, that he's into sort of, like, creating this sort of, like, anthropological study. Mm-hmm. That he likes to sort of put all the animals like in the cage, you know, and see what happens. Puts everything on the petri dish and like see what develops. So he's not the type that just has everything storyboarded and then he's just shooting those exact shots and it's over. No, I think he has an idea of what he wants in his head. But we also like we're shooting a scene and then he sort of went like, "Oh, you know, it'd be a good shot right now." And this is where the fact that he's Martin Scorsese, like in 2016 or when we were filming this, it was 2014, comes into play. Is that like he? because he's so iconic and so huge now has like the time and money to do things the way he wants. Right. So a, he has the time to allow everyone to try their things because right. he's able to fight for that. He's able to go on Martin Scorsese. If I'm making something, I mm-hmm. want two months to film. Yeah. Even though it's only this long because I know I want the space. Right. But he also has everything sort of available to him at his fingertips. So if he suddenly goes like, Oh, this would be a good crane shot, you know? I mean, there's a scene where he opens up a guitar case, where Bobby Cannavale, the lead character, opens up a guitar case. And they don't end up using it in the pilot. Yeah. But um, they were shooting it just sort of head on. The camera was in front of him, and he opens up the guitar case, and you see it from there. Right. And then he sort of had this idea of, like, what if we started on the guitar case, and it was on a big crane, and when he lifted up the, the lid of the case, the camera would go over. Mm-hmm. So rather than seeing the guitar from the side, you'd go to sort of a bird's eye view shot. Right. And you'd see the camera from the top. Right. And then you'd go and land back down on the ground to get his facial reaction to the guitar. It's amazing the work that goes into like, what would that be? A one second shot? Two yeah, seconds? Two? Yeah. But like the second he had that decision, they went, okay, we got to get the crane. And mm-hmm. then they had to get the crane from the truck, you know? So much downtime on set, right? I mean, it took three <laughs> or four hours and then they didn't end up using the shot. But in the moment, he sort of went like, I, I might want this shot. Right. This is an idea I'm having right now. Mm-hmm. And I've given myself the time and the money to, like, yep. follow these ideas and see what works. Um, so, is Mick Jagger hanging out on set the whole t- while the filming is happening? Uh, he, was, he was there a decent amount. I mean, Scorsese was there, like, every day because he was directing the thing. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and he was actively directing. He wasn't talking to an assistant director or anything? Um, he sort of, the assistant director would come in and just go, like, okay, just do another one if he didn't have any notes. Okay. You know, because right. so often he was like, I just want to keep on doing takes and see what comes up. 
Mm-hmm. So the assistant director would go like, good, Marty likes it, do it again. Right. And then every like three takes, Scorsese would come in and sort of like do his little like, well, what if you did this? Okay, this is what I need from you. Right. Does that line work for you? If that's not funny, say something funnier, you know? Oh, wow. I mean, he's like very like, I, I don't know if, it, if you like it, then do that, you know? Yeah, and it's it's why he uses the same crew, why he's yes. you know historically used a lot of the same actors over and over again, yeah. so he can trust these people and know that if I tell someone be funny, he trusts that he might get something funny out of it. Yeah, that he has sort of a dialogue yeah. going with all these people, and they get how it works. And it was amazing working on the pilot, being like uh, when we have the table read, and it was the, the pilot has like a bazillion characters in it. Mm-hmm. When I was meeting almost everyone, the people who are going to be the leads on the shows, and the people who are the smaller recurring characters, and the people who are just one-off characters just for the pilot, you know, almost all of them had worked with him before. Right. I mean, almost everyone who was older than me right. and thus had been acting for more than five years or whatever, you know. So this might be good for you because you're in I with Marty. So. Yeah, I hope so. Just don't <laughs> fuck him. Yeah, right. Him, you know? <laughs> but it was interesting. Like, he just sort of trusts, like, you know, I'd meet a guy and then I'd go to his IMDb and I'd be like, oh, that guy was the cop in, like, The Departed and right. Shutter Island and Bringing Out the Dead and Cape Fear. Like, he's, like, had, like, a two-line cop role in like seven different Scorsese movies and now he's the two-line cop in this. And your role in this, in the, your, what's your role in Vinyl? I'm like, yeah, I'm like a, an A&R executive. I'm okay. sort of like a lower level A&R executive at this record label that the show centered around. So maybe you'll be like just a, an executive in all the rest of his movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or just some sort of grunt, some sort of office uh-huh. dude, yeah. I got, I got a really like gnarly mustache. Mm-hmm. And really god awful clothes. I like tried to wear the worst stuff I possibly could. Did you improvise at all with him there? Yeah, you did. Yeah, there was a, there was a joke I had in the script, and he went like, "Is that is that funny?" <laughs> and I was like, "Well, I um, you know, because I don't want to tell him it's not funny. Right. Like, you know, I I felt like I wasn't nailing the joke. Right. I was having a really tough time with it. Yeah. But my first instinct is always going to be, I'm fucking this up. Right. Not the joke isn't good. What, yeah, what was your answer to when he said that? I said I said to him, like, I, I think I just haven't found the right read on it yet, but I'll make it work. Nice. And yes. he went, no, no, but, but, but is it funny? I mean, do you think... I don't even get the joke. What is the joke? But isn't that a question for the writer and not the actor? Yeah, but the writer wasn't there on that day. So uh-huh. he sort of went like, do, I, I, like, he wasn't testing me. He was like, it's supposed to be a joke, right? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I don't even get it. It's a kind of muddled joke, right? And uh-huh. I was like, well, the joke's supposed to be like this and that. And he went, is he though? You never know with Hollywood, you know? I don't know. It seemed pretty sincere. And I was like, well, the joke's like this and that. And he mm-hmm. went, oh, I don't think that's really funny. I mean, do you like that? I went, I mean, it's not great. And he <laughs> said, so what would you say instead? And I was like, I don't know. Is something like this? And he went, okay, yeah, say that. And I'm sure he has the awareness that you... As a as a fairly new actor, yeah. didn't want to tell Scorsese that it was a bad joke, so it sounded like he was kind of giving you the permission to say it's a bad joke. Yeah, but he said, "What great. would you say instead?" Yeah. And I said, "I don't know, something like this." And he went, "Say that," and that's what's in the pilot. Wow! I won't say which line it is, just in case the writers listening, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know. But there's one there's one line I have that's like totally my own mm-hmm. in lieu of. And the whole first half of that scene is actually a lot of improvised stuff because he kept on sort of being like, "That's fun, just try that." Yeah. So had, had you done a bunch of improv before that? Yeah, I had. So after I stopped doing stand-up when I was like 13, then I got really into improv for a while. I started mm-hmm. doing stand-up again when I was 19, when I left college and I started auditioning and doing stand-up again. But from sort of 13 to 19, I was mostly into improv and I had like a, a troupe 
with a bunch of friends. Where were you doing improv at 13? Well, so we were doing, I mean, we did very few shows because like, you know, we weren't going to get to play UCB or whatever. Right. Uh, so we would mostly get booked on these like underground, you know, I- improv like bar shows. Can you even go? No, you can't. No. So yeah. we would like go into these shows. We have to be like, we have to go up first. Right. And we'd run into the bar with our hoods up. And we'd go to the back area where the show was happening, and we'd try to just, like, once we were on stage, they wouldn't kick us out. And then the second we got off stage, they'd be like, you got to get out of here. Yeah, yeah. And you we can't would, even be in the bar if you're under 21. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. So we were, like, 15, 16, and we were, like, it was, like, hard day's night, except it wasn't glamorous. We were running because the, <laughs> the bartenders were trying to chase right. us out. Yeah. But we were doing, like, bar shows, like, Parkside Lounge and mm-hmm. stuff like that. There was a show, Variety Underground. Mm-hmm. Um, that still, I, I believe, still happens there. Maybe it doesn't. It changed host for a long time, but it was one of the longest running sort of. They did improv and sketch and stand up and everything. Parkside Lounge has been there a while. Yeah, but that yeah. that specific show, Variety Underground, I think ran for like eight or nine years. It nice. might still be running now. Where were you studying improv at thirteen? Were you studying it or just? Uh, yeah, I went to this uh, summer camp uh, called Bucks Rock in New Milford, Connecticut. Bucks Rock? Bucks Rock. I would never send my kid to any place in Bucks Rock. rock. <laughs> uh, the legacy was that there's a big rock behind the theater, and they were like, oh, that's Bucks Rock. But, but It's a terrible name. For it's it. apparently bullshit. <laughs> apparently what the story is, there's a horrible road leading up to the camp. So when uh, you're driving into the camp, there's like the road where you're like uh, jiggling, <laughs> you know? It's this horrible like cobble road. Uh-huh. And that road is Bucks Rock road because it's the road that buck made out of rock and they were like oh we're on buck's rock road well let's just call our camp buck's rock but who? buck is fucking nobody he's some yeah. dude who made a road he had nothing to do with the camp he doesn't even know about improv no no it's like if you called it the eighth street camp you know it was right. just the eighth street but it sounds like it's buck's rock like it has some yeah important but it doesn't not um, only does buck not know about improv but it is not a name of camp he doesn't fucking do anything he just all he knows is to make a road and let me say this i don't think he made it well it's a shitty road it's hard to drive on it's a bad road buck's not good at much is no, Buck sucks. <laughs> Buck's a fucking bullshit artist. That's all Buck knows how to do. Is make a shitty a road. Shitty road and a shitty camp. Yeah. No, but obviously it did no, work No, it's for a great you. camp. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like a general arts camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had gone to a different camp and my best buddy, dude's still my best and oldest friend, uh, after like two summers at this one camp, I was like, oh, I'm going to go to this Buck's Rock camp. And I followed him there. And they um, had this, it was called the clown shop because it was originally the sort of structure into different like, here's ceramics, here's painting, here's theater. Mm-hmm. It's all these different little sections and you can go sort of make your own schedule and do what you want. It's like it was, Time Out New York came to life. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You're flipping through the pages and picking what you want to do. And uh, it was originally clowning. They originally had a person with a wheelbarrow that had like uh you know, juggling pins and clown noses and right. a unicycle, and that's what they would teach them how to do. And then it got popular if they did their own thing, and they started doing shows, the clown shows that were originally literal clown shows. They so were you were studying clown routines. Or? I wasn't. By the time I got to the camp, it had morphed into like improv and sketch comedy mm-hmm. with like two percent clowning. Okay. <laughs> you know, by my first year there, there would still be one sketch per show that was a clown piece. Right. Where they had the noses on and it was nonverbal and it was a movement sort of comedy thing. And then by the time I ended up working up the ranks and becoming a counselor there, and by that time we had no fucking root and clowning anymore. Right. We still had the wheelbarrow on the corner. If someone wanted to juggle, we'd go, Yeah, I don't know how to juggle. If you want to juggle, you noses got, are just rotting yeah, on the ground. Ro- truly, yeah. <laughs> um, but there was this amazing sort of thing where it was um because it was the sort of um 
for a certain kind of kid like myself, you know, I've been doing stand up, but like to go there and suddenly have like, oh, you're working with other kids in a collaborative way, doing improv and doing sketch comedy. Mm-hmm. And it feels like you're being treated like an adult in right. a way. Yeah. Because you're all like, it, it felt like the Muppet Show. It's like we're a bunch of lunatics together trying to scrape this thing by using your own brain. Yeah. Yeah. A bunch of people like myself, it was such an instrumental part in our childhoods that then they go and then they go and off and do their adult lives and then pursue comedy and then come back and be a counselor was it co-ed as well uh it was yeah cool but so we had counselors who were doing comedy as adults right in the off year which they only got into comedy because they had gone to the camp when they were younger Mm. so there's this sort of cyclical thing to it and so i was being taught when i was like you know a teenager improv by like becky drysdale who i don't know if you know but yeah, it's I like this name. amazing improv guru and also uh writes for key and peel yeah. and uh baskets the galifianakis show it's just like amazing comedy one of the smartest people i've ever met but she was working at boom chicago mm-hmm. which was the amsterdam output is the amsterdam output of second city mm-hmm. and in the summer from that she was teaching us the things that she was practicing with uh jordan peel Right. And like Baronholtz and like all these real people, you know? So uh, this camp must have gave birth to other people that we know? Uh, yeah, Mike Kaplan. Oh, really? Was he a was? counselor there? Yeah. He ironically was there. He was a guitar counselor. Yeah. And he sort of wrote funny songs. Yeah. That's he did how, like comedy songs, right? Yeah. We had him on this podcast. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he wrote comedy songs. And then when he went to college, and he, not to tell Mike's origin story, but I just think <laughs> it's a great story. But when he went to college and he, he was in Boston and he was like going to local comedy clubs and was like, can I do, I, I have like, you know, 20 minutes of comedy songs. Uh-huh. They were like, we don't really let comedy song people on, but if you're a stand up, you can perform a song within your set right so he started writing jokes as like means to an end to get to perform his songs mm. he's like if i can write five minutes of jokes i'll do two minutes do a song and then another two and a half minutes or whatever right and then he became an incredible stand-up and he then later went back and became the stand-up counselor specifically he would sort of uh teach stand-up at the camp Interesting. Uh, but becky drysdale god why am i blanking on other people um, I mean, uh, from this current, like, uh, crop, Raisani, do you know Raisani? Yeah. Stand up? Yep. No, why am I saying that? I went to high school with her. I didn't go to a summer camp with her. <laughs> I'm confusing people now. Um, I mean, there are some other people who have been successful in other I'm imagining areas. it must be tough yeah. to be, I don't know how old Mike was at the time, probably in his 20s at least. I think he was his early 20s, yeah. Okay, so to teach stand-up to a 13-year-old, you were 13, 14 at the time? Yeah, yeah, something like that, yeah. I mean, there's just such a gap in, like, you yeah. know, material. And- yeah, although he was, I mean, it was interesting because he was still at the time, like, developing as a stand-up. Right. We know how many years it takes till you're not terrible. Right, yeah. You know, and, like... When I started again when I was 19, it didn't matter I did when I was 13. I'm starting from square one. Well, you do have some of the things worked out. You know how to use a microphone. Yeah. You you know how to be on stage. Yeah, I knew that. But, like, I had no material, and I was a different person than I was then. You know, I, like, aged up a bunch. And it's, like, starting over, you know, with, like, a different kind of brain. But he... um, He would... We'd see him year after year, and and he, like, for years was, like... Mike's a good teacher. But he's not that funny. Yeah, and right. then one year he was just amazing. Right. You know? And it kind of felt like he was learning how to become a better stand up as he was teaching other sure. people how to do stand up. Teaching you know? can do that. I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
um and now now he's amazing yeah but there was that like that one summer where we were just like what the fuck happened to mike he went to the comedy crossroads yeah and he's just like <laughs> just killing it now he's like only throwing fastballs yeah why am i not thinking of anyone else right now there are other people i mean uh, uh sam rogal and pat may who are like big improvisers mm-hmm. at the magnet theater uh, alejandro Collini, who's like a really good friend of mine a really good stand-up so it's almost like that um there's a school here in new york city for artists and i'm spacing on the LaGuardia. name yeah yeah Yeah. it gives a lot gives birth to a lot of actors and performers yeah yeah there's a lot of that and there are a lot of people i mean um uh buckstruck people who are in different fields now so Mm -hmm. like uh uh, ezra koenig from vampire weekend was a buckstruck guy Mm. uh l king who's like a big musician now is a buckstruck person so not only are you improvising at a young age but you're improvising with like some really talented people yeah yeah and it sort of felt like it was like Oh, this is like the weirdest kid from each school. Right, exactly, yeah. You know, all put mm-hmm. together in this sort of Avengers environment. So it makes for a really cool incubator. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then we had this improv group that was like, you know, uh, me and one buddy who went to my high school, and then but then it was like four or five different kids from uh, the greater five boroughs, and then how we had you- one kid from New Jersey and one kid from Connecticut. They were all from the summer camp. Okay, well, how did your parents know about, or how did you know about this camp? I knew about it only through this friend. I had the friend who I went to the earlier camp with, and he was going there. And I just went like, well, I don't want to go back to the old camp if my buddy Derek isn't there. That's what I was saying earlier. Yeah. If that one friend didn't... I just followed him blindly into yeah. the camp. I never even toured it, I don't think. Yeah. This is how fragile our fates are. Yeah. You know, if that yeah, one friend, that's it. You wouldn't have been to that camp. Who knows where you would have ended up. Yeah. So yeah. A, a lot of these kids all year, maybe they're getting bullied. Mm-hmm. They come to this camp. Uh, were there still some bullies there in this camp that was like, oh, finally, I get to be the bully? Not really. And even, really? like, there was this phenomenon of, I mean, you know, there were shitty kids, but, right. like, they were so sort of, it was such a weirdo camp that it was like, if you're a shitty kid, like, everyone's just going to stop paying attention to you. Uh-huh. I mean, a bully's power comes in their ability to, like, rally other people behind them. Right. You know? Like, the, the Donald Trump can be like, you're a loser. And then other people are like, I don't want to get called a loser. I'll stand behind the guy who's calling other people a loser. Right, yeah. That sort of sensibility. And, like, the people who came in and were sort of like you know, bro or complicated, you know, or difficult or whatever it was, antagonistic. Mm-hmm. People would just be like, what are you fucking do? You can't sew a dress. I don't care. Right. You have no currency <laughs> here, you know? Yeah. You know, it's if you totally can't weave different. a basket, you have no, no value <laughs> at this place. Um, My Kaplan's bullying was using high vocabulary. Right. Like, I do remember them being mean kids, but it didn't feel like they could bully. It was just like, this kid sucks. Like, this kid's just right. an asshole, but yeah. they don't have that same sort of power. Um, but it was, uh, it, it, there was a weird thing where it was like, it would create this dynamic where we would feel very cool during the summer. And then we'd go back to school and we would not be cool. Right. You know, I mean, we were like, if you were, you know, my buddies and I were like the stars of this comedy program. Mm-hmm. And we were like the people where people would like cheer when we came on stage in the sketch. Yeah. And then you go back home and no one gives a shit, you know? In a way though, doesn't that strengthen your resolve as a performer and an artist? I think so. And it also just sort of, when I would go back to school, I'd be like, well, okay, I know that I can, there's, there's are environments where I can do this. Right. You've seen the other side and you know that there's a place where you belong. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It did sort of feel like that. Um, so that was, that was cool. Yeah. And that was, that was a big formative thing for me. Huge. Huge. Especially at 13. Yeah. Jeez. When I was 13, I was just like, all right, I hope there's other people out there like me. I have no idea. No, it was crazy. Yeah. Um, 
It was, it was nuts to just meet other people who had like the same sense of humor that I did. Well, you know? at, at that age, like you're still just starting to form an identity of who you yeah. are. So to get that affirmation that, oh, it's okay who I am. There's other people doing this that are interested in this. That's huge for a kid. Yeah. And I feel like so much of my personality was formed there. And I even like, I mean, I remember uh, one summer, maybe my second summer, mm-hmm. when I just felt like I really came into myself and right. I, like know who I am now and I know what I do and I feel like I'm good at it and I know what I like and my friends and whatever. And then I went back home to school and I was like now fully this like, you know, weaponized weird guy. Right. You're the confident you know? weirdo now. Right. And then everyone was like, fuck this guy. Like, yeah. like all my friends I'd had the year before were like distancing themselves from me. Because they were like, who, who are you now, you know? But in a way, it gives you an outsider's perspective because you see, like, the bully or whatever, the popular kid. And yeah. You're just, oh, whatever. I, you're just, you know, you know how the other, there, there's other th- parts to the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because, yeah, my, my school that I went to at that time was very, very small. Mm-hmm. And by nature of having a very small amount of kids per grade, my best friends were, like, the basketball team. Oh, right. Those were like the guys I liked the most. Mm -hmm. But they also, I didn't have much in common with them because I didn't play basketball. So you didn't have much to choose from. Your school is Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so it was like, I like those guys and I still, I like them. You know, I I see them occasionally and and they're good guys, but I just like, you know, they didn't have the same interests as me. Yeah. And there weren't those sort of things I could relate on. I didn't have as much of an outlet for my stuff. And a lot of my like days after school and weekends were like sitting on the court and watching them play basketball oh, this like, i wasn't gonna play you know <laughs> so i would like talk to their parents or i would like pretend to be doing like color commentary or whatever i'd run the scoreboard in the gym or whatever it was but i like wasn't playing basketball uh-huh. and then i went to this place where it's like oh everyone's doing the same thing as me and this is my basketball team right is this sketch group or this improv troupe or whatever it is right yeah and it's also neat that it was co-ed because you get to work with females in a productive creative way yeah, also just, like, make out with people. Like, that was great. You know, <laughs> that's the best. That was, my first kiss was there, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah. But in school, I feel like um, you don't really, unless you're maybe in a play together. Yeah. The sports teams are separate. Yes. Nothing's co-ed. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and this was, yeah, obviously very, very integrated. And you're also dealing with kids of different ages. Right. So, you know, I was 12 or 13, and our counselors were in their early 20s. Mm-hmm. But you were also working with, I mean, the difference when you're 13, between 13 and 15, and 15 and 17, 17 and 19 is massive. Yeah. And you're working with all of those ages. Yeah. So and, it taught you to integrate with different age groups. Yeah. Women. Yeah. 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 And I did, I mean, it, uh, there was sort of the older group my first summer there of CITs. Mm-hmm. Of counselors in training yeah uh who uh took me under their wing and you know sort of like um mentored me and it like made me it, it, it was a big thing for me to be like these are older kids who are taking me seriously and think i'm funny and are allowing me to hang out with them as like an equal right you know they wouldn't bully you like a normal sleepaway camp like draw on your face while you're sleeping or pee on you or anything? The older kids you're talking about? The counselors? <laughs> uh, I have one shitty counselor who would fucking do shit like that. But yeah. by, by and large, I mean, it, look, it happened. I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. the kids are awful. <laughs> you put kids in a room together, <laughs> totally. bad things are going to happen. They're going to pee on each other. Yeah. There was definitely that sort of like uh, hazing sort of stuff, like yeah. pranky stuff. But yeah. I don't think there was like hardcore bullying. Right. Not to say I was happy when I woke up and shit was drawn on my face, but it, it felt more like that was happening from like friends than 
you know, an antagonistic, like a, a pointed attack. Yeah, you weren't scared that for your life or anything. Uh, no, there was one counselor who was an asshole, though, who uh-huh. would do the fucking, like, throw you into the shower and shit like that. Where is he now? <laughs> he, he just had a baby. I'm, I'm scared for that kid. I saw oh, on no. Facebook, yeah. When I was coming over here, I was checking my Facebook. I don't know what he's doing, though. Yeah. I love that we can keep up with uh, everyone on Facebook. You're right. All, all your favorite enemies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See all those people from high school that yeah. you're like, oh, good. Yeah. Just as I expected. Bullet dodge, yeah. So uh, you did, so, wow, you, sorry, so you got your improv started. Uh, so uh, you did, you started with UCB at some point. Yeah, uh, is that I, right? I sort of, um, I was, I mean, I took classes and everything. Mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of that and I was doing sort of indie teams. But that was also around the time that I was starting to get back into stand-up. Mm. So I sort of like, um, there was sort of a handoff. Mm-hmm. you know like i dropped out i had done mostly improv i came to new york i was back to new york after dropping out of college i was doing improv again I was taking classes i was sort of on you know the far far outer reaches of the ucb scene but maybe trying to work towards the middle and then i started doing open mics and was like oh i really like doing this and i sort of felt like those are very different minds you use like stand the up versus improv yeah yeah and I felt like I'm more into stand-up right now. And I feel like the more I'm working on stand-up, the worse I'm becoming at improv. Uh-huh. Like, my improv was suffering. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, I sort of put the improv thing on ice. And, and for like five or six years, I was just really doing stand-up. Mm-hmm. And wasn't really doing um, a sketch or improv. But then I've been on a sketch team at UCB for about a year and a half now. When you was your goal to become a better stand up? Like, did you see yourself just playing bigger shows as a stand up, or you just wanted to be writing comedy? Yeah, I mean, I always feel like I I uh, do stand up to do stand up. I've mm-hmm. I've weirdly not been that um, goal driven with it. Mm-hmm. Like, certainly, I would love to someday play you know, fucking Radio City Music Hall or whatever right. if I felt like I was capable of doing that at that point. Yeah. I would love to feel like at some point that I had the ability to do that and do that. Right. But I don't feel like, I guess maybe because this whole time I was also auditioning and that's so constantly objective. It's like multiple times a week. Yeah. Something's being dangled in front of your face. That's mm-hmm. like, here's the part, here's the project, here's when it would start filming. So doing stand-up must have been a nice relief because you could just get up there and do it. Where audition, yeah. it's like, oh, I want to do this thing. Well, we'll let you know if you can do it. Yeah, that's the weird thing is like, I always have taken stand-up very seriously, but I've also always sort of treated it as like a thing I can do and have complete control over. Mm-hmm. And get reactions and, and get feedback. immediate feedback from like i can will this into existence right i can get myself on shows i can get on stage i can perform right and then that happened yeah because that leads to more shows like that's that's the thing you know yeah. it's just sort of like for me stand-up's always been more of a perpetual motion machine of just mm-hmm. trying to keep those muscles like in shape it is very liberating because like right now we could just leave and go be on stage in a half an hour if we wanted to. Right. There's probably an open mic somewhere we can get on. Yeah, and I love that. And there, there is nothing that feels better than having a good set. I mean, I've experienced nothing in my life, you know, uh-huh. any type of performance or anything. Uh-huh. Nothing's better than having a good stand-up set because yeah. it just feel, it feels like magic. It feels like, how did I fucking like walk into a room yeah. of disinterested people, you yeah. know? And, and make them all laugh at the same time? That doesn't seem possible. Like, what, what could I have to say that would make that happen? It's a pretty great buzz, yeah. It's a pretty fucking amazing high. <laughs> um, and, you know, last year I was starting to get more serious about, like, okay, I want to, like, 
have a solid hour that I know is like my hour because right. you're always doing these little short sets around New York, yeah. you know. Um, so I sort of worked on my hour and did like a series of shows with that, but then I sort of had more acting stuff come up, and um, I've gotten a little off the train just because when I have jobs running, mm-hmm. something like vinyl where I'm not working all the time, but you never know when they're going to ask you to work. Right. It's tough to like, if you're doing a show and it's like, Hey, you want to do a 10 minute spot? If I have to cancel, that's fine. Right. If I'm like booking a night at union hall where I'm the headliner yeah. and I'm going to do an hour and maybe have someone open for me or maybe even not. Right. And then I find out I'm filming that night. Mm-hmm. Well then I'm fucked, yeah. you know? And yeah. then like they pre-sold tickets or whatever it is, you know, it's a big letdown. Yeah. Yeah. So I sort of the last chunk of time I've been doing it less than I wish I was just cause I've had, um, luckily, thankfully a nice series of jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm trying to get back into it and sort of hone that hour and see where I can sort of go with that. But for me, it's always just, I like doing it. Yeah. I don't know. I sometimes wish I was more ambitious, like about trying to really hit like, oh, I want to be get on stage five times a night or even just like I want to get past at this club. Right. Or I want to be opening for this person or touring this or whatever it is or like submitting to this festival or whatever. Well, you're there's several ways to go at it. I mean, the way you're doing it, you could bypass all that stuff by being on a show. You know, Aziz Ansari wouldn't sell out Madison Square Garden if he wasn't on Parks and Rec. Right, exactly. And he didn't even do his first special until after he had been on Parks and Rec for a couple of years. He'd been doing stand-up for a long time at that point. Yeah. But he wasn't doing a Comedy Central half hour. He waited until, like, 2010. A lot of people are... He's a great stand-up, but a lot of people are going to see him because he's the guy on Parks and Rec. Right. And that's the thing I think about sometimes, you know? I mean, you don't want that position where someone's like, oh, is he only getting to do this because he's an actor now? And it's like, well, I've been doing stand-up the whole time, you know? Right. Well, you still have to deliver. Yeah, exactly. They they might come into the building, but they're not going to stay happily. Yeah. So, I don't know. I I think very long-term in terms of Mm stand-up. It's something I want to be doing my entire life. And I'd love to, at some point, sort of achieve those, like, sort of benchmarky stuff. But I'm also maybe not, like, on the clock for myself yeah because i put so much anxiety into like hunting for the next acting job right that i like having stand-up just be like an outlet yeah well that's good i think that's the best because uh once it becomes like your thing there's so much unnecessary weight on it yeah i sort of because i like doing a bunch of stuff i definitely think i try to tier things so that like like i love drawing Uh but i've never tried to do anything professional with it ever and it's kind of liberating right exactly and i think i'm pretty good at but i don't even like not only do i not try to like get paid to draw Mm -hmm. but i also like don't try to do like big projects with it that much i just sort of draw when i want to draw yeah keeps your relationship with it pure yeah Yeah. right and it's like because everything else i'm worried about like fuck if i get this job that's lead to this if i do Mm -hmm. this show in front of this person then when i get booked on that show and like Whatever. It's nice to have some outlets where you're just like... My relationship with music has changed a lot because I was in a band and we did a lot of touring all over the place. And, and you were predominantly music before you got into stand-up, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Like, really yeah. pursuing music. And I did pretty... You know, I did decently at it. It wasn't like no one ever heard it. Yeah. But um, now that I stopped doing it, my when I play music, it just feels so much lighter. Yeah. It's so... My love for music is stronger than ever now. It's great. Well, there's the pressure you put on yourself when the thing you're doing is what you need to do to, like, make a living. Right. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. It's like, I I need to be able to eat food. I need to have rent. You know, like, all this sort of stuff. It makes it cloudy. 
Right. It can cloud it, yeah. And so if it's like, okay, acting's the main thing I'm sort of putting that pressure on. Stand-up is like, this is a creative expression. This is an art form I love. I really like doing this. Yeah. Sometimes I might get paid for doing it. You know, it's usually not huge amounts. I scrape by here and there, but that's not like, I'm not looking to that as my primary source of income. Right. And then drawing something I'm just doing for myself. I could usually find two sides to everything though, because, yeah. you know, if it was like, that was the only way you can get by, you'd be like Eminem. Oh, a hundred percent. You'd be like, have to be the best rapper to support you and your daughter, you know? Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And I feel like, I don't know if, I, I mean, there are moments where I've sort of gotten a little tired of the, the acting rat race and been like maybe mm-hmm. i'll step away and just try to hustle and stand up like mm-hmm. full time and i've sort of when i've started to get into that every time i felt that then something's come up in acting and i've sort of gotten sidetracked from it but i sort of feel like if i put my like nose to the grind and i like really went for it yeah i could do it but i'm also kind of just happy like doing whatever shows i can you know mm-hmm. i don't know and so with acting, vinyl is on break now. Are you yeah. working on something else, auditioning um, for, for anything? I no? just finished a pilot uh, last, like two weeks ago now. I don't know when this will be released. But when, we, we finished a pilot in May mm-hmm. uh, for um, uh, The Tick, which is like the old cartoon, the cartoon? show, okay. comic book series. Yeah. So what, is it live action? It's live action, yeah. Didn't, didn't they have a live action show a few years back that there never, was never really in the early out? 2000s, yeah. yeah, that was like more sitcom-y. Right. It was like very sort of... It was um, with uh, Patrick Warburton. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, which I'm a big fan of that show. But um, the uh, Ben Edlund, who is the guy who created the comic book and was the showrunner on the cartoon show and then also was the showrunner on that show, had sort of had this itch to make a different type of live action show. That was a little closer to the the comics and the cartoon because mm-hmm. at the time the Warburton show was on the air, it was uh, there, the superhero movie wave hadn't really started, mm-hmm. so there wasn't much of like a cultural context for like an adult superhero show, which is crazy to think that only like sixteen years ago people didn't understand the concept of like yeah. a, a live action superhero show. But um, that showed the, the network very much because there wasn't really like a frame of reference wanted to make it like a parody. Right. It was like a sitcom. Mm-hmm. And it's about like superheroes at a bar on their off hours, you know, like talking. <laughs> it's like but, Seinfeld with superheroes. That's honestly what they said. Like they kept on sort of pushing <laughs> really? towards like kidding. Seinfeld with superheroes. Yeah, no, 100%. That's what they wanted. And like, I like that show a lot. And I think he's proud of it in a lot of ways. But he also felt like there was a more epic sort of like active live action tick that was closer to the comics, which is uh, funny, but is more of a satire and is like a little drier mm-hmm. and is funny. Like the, the original comic books were sort of coming right after uh, Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen and all the sort of like very serious deconstructionist superhero comics of Alan Moore and Frank Miller and everything. And the tick was sort of a satire of that. Um, of that sort of self-serious, like, mm-hmm. probing, introspective comic book done with ridiculous characters. Right. And the cartoon show was similarly kind of like a satire of the other superhero cartoons that were on at the time, like yeah. X-Men and what have you. So and they've reworked it into something more... I, th- I think this current show is reflective of, like, the Marvel Netflix shows and right. the Flash and Arrow and Batman versus Superman, maybe a little less the Marvel Universe, but, like, the... The sort of darker, grittier. It's not a dark, gritty show because mm-hmm. that has been said in interviews and was misinterpreted. Yeah. But I think it's a satire of placing the tick mythos into that kind of trapping and making it look like it's an, a big, expensive, serious superhero movie. But well, then, what's your role in it? 
Uh, I play Arthur. Oh, okay. the, the sidekick. Yeah. The brains yeah, yeah, behind. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, that's a great yeah. role. Tick and Arthur sort of like, they got like an id ego thing going on. So Tick is like all sort of forward momentum. He's kind of like the Adam West Batman, where uh-huh. it's like these long monologues and he just has a thirst for justice and yeah. distaste for crime. And, uh, but he's sort of, you know, like got the brain of a golden retriever. I mean, he's just sort of like following. He's all emotion, no thought. Yeah. And, and Arthur is like sort of paralyzed with thought, mm-hmm. you know, like a, uh, almost powerless to, to get out of bed in the morning. Right. But is, I don't know. Should to, I get out of bed? I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm happy here. Maybe I'll right. get out of bed. But he's know. able to sort of analyze these situations because he's so hyper aware. He's got, right. It's not his superpower, but he is sort of thoughtful and observant of everything character. that's happening around yeah. him. Yeah. So they have this sort of uh, odd couple, like old married couple uh-huh. relationship. It sounds interesting. I think it's going to be really good. Yeah. We shot the pilot last month and then uh, it was for Amazon. Uh-huh. So the way they do their pilots, uh, it goes up. They put all the pilots up online uh, for free, whether or not you have like a membership. Mm-hmm. And people watch them, and then they sort of look at the feedback, mm-hmm. how many views each one gets, what reviews they get, what kind of tweets they get. I mean, there's no set. It's not a voting system, and it's not a set algorithm that leads okay. to a pickup. So it's not a popularity contest. No, I mean, because even like transparent, I I think I heard, I might be speaking at, out of turn here, but I think I heard that it was the least watched pilot of that year. Sure, I can imagine. But the ratings were really big. <laughs> uh, not the ratings, right? The, the reviews were like amazing. The everyone, people that watched it. Everyone who watched it was like, this is incredible. Right. And they sort of went like, okay, I think if we do a full season, the audience will find it. Mm-hmm. So so Amazon produces and funds the pilot for a bunch of shows. They put them up. Yeah. And then if they, they figure the, the, the audience likes it, we'll put money into making a, a, a series or eight yeah. episodes or whatever. Exactly. So yeah, the, the, sh- the pilot will go on Amazon. It'll be like on the main homepage in when? August. August. Okay. I don't know exactly. Exactly when, but sometime in August. And then uh, they'll sort of, you know, lick their finger, hold it up in the wind, mm-hmm. see, see what the temperature's like. And Do you then, know how many uh, pilots they, they put up at, at one time? Uh, it and, used to how be... How many they choose? Yeah, it used to be they'd only do one batch of pilots a year, and I think it was closer to like seven or eight. And now I think they maybe do like a couple a year of two or three. Mm-hmm. Because they have like a couple tracks. They'll like at any given time post like two or three adult pilots and two or three like kid shows. Um, but it's not like there's a competition in the sense that like, well, we're only going to pick up one or the other. Right. They sort of like, if they right. if all the shows go well, they'll pick them all up. Right. They don't need to fill slots. They don't have to be, we have to put this one at nine o'clock on right. Wednesdays. Exactly. Yeah. So there's not like a quota of a minimum they have to hit, but there's also not a maximum. They'll do anything they think is sustainable. Are they looking into the kind of people that are watching? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a benefit that like Amazon and Netflix have over networks mm-hmm. is like a the way most tv channels are gauging whether or not people are watching is a nielsen box which is like the most antiquated system in the world yeah uh but like it, i always heard like seinfeld the first season was so got such low ratings yeah. but the only reason they kept it on is because the people watching were kind of middle class wealthier people yeah that spend money yes yes 100 percent. yeah um and and amazon you know I mean, here's the interesting thing with them. They're not selling advertising. Right. So they don't have that same sort of uh, thing going for them. But what they do have is if they produce a show, they own it in perpetuity. Mm. And so it's not just about like, oh, we'll do well this month when it's on there. 
Right. Especially in this culture now where people are going back and binging on, you know, watching all of The Sopranos tomorrow. Right. Even though it ended 10 years ago and started eight years before that. Yeah. Sopranos is like an evergreen kind of thing. 40% of all podcast listeners listen to older episodes. Right. I mean, this is sort of the media landscape we're in right now. So if Amazon produces a a season of The Tick and people like it, Mm -hmm. for the rest of time, if anyone goes, oh, I heard The Tick was good. I want to watch that. They have to subscribe to amazon prime in order to watch the show right and so like that's the gambit they're making and they do because they're you know they have customer base so they know the demographics of the people not in a big brother way but like they know they know exactly what their their users are buying yeah they know and they know where you live and they know how old you are (laughs) i mean all these things are a little terrifying if you think about it but they do sort of know like okay they can sort of sense like this show's doing really well in this part of america or with this age group and maybe that's an age group that we're not appealing to otherwise is it just the u.s or is it all over the world uh they do amazon does exist all over the world i don't know exactly how it works with the video stuff okay because i read the other day that like amazon japan is developing their own tv shows now i don't know if that means that amazon japan doesn't already carry the american amazon shows or what it is i think in certain cases around the world they'll sell the show to a a foreign channel and maybe do maybe dub it yeah, yeah. right but um I, I don't know how it works sometimes i know with netflix like if you're in a different country your ip address will block you from watching american netflix yeah you can watch german netflix if you have a german account but you can't watch american netflix there but yeah they, the thing they're looking for is like they want to have as many things as they can that make people want to subscribe to the entire amazon library mm-hmm. so right now they've only been making tv shows for like three or four years Mm-hmm. They only have a couple series, you know, they have a handful. They've done a lot of pilots and they have like right. you know, six or seven live action adult series that have like gone. And what they want is to keep on making more and more. So like HBO, it's like, oh man, if I get HBO Go, I have Sex in the City, I have The Sopranos, I have Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. You have all these things in like perpetuity. So they're looking sort of more long term like that, which is great. And this is not becoming a business discussion of how Amazon. Well, Amazon, Amazon Prime. Yeah, you can order yeah. a movie and popcorn delivered right. at the same time. Well, and I think that's also, I mean, what I like to tell myself, the appetizing thing about doing a show like The Tick is that, um, you know, Transparent's a great TV show, but there's not as many. Uh, uh, avenues for merchandising right. on transparent as there would be for a show about superheroes right so if they know that they could like make a show about super this also me speaking out my ass so uh, yeah. you know don't <laughs> don't think that i'm talking for amazon executives this is my understanding of the system yeah, yeah. mostly just from reading articles about it this yeah. isn't what like jeff bezos has told me one-on-one because i haven't met jeff bezos right but, but um, at least hey you know the ceo of amazon is so you're already like approaching yeah. from an educated this is a yeah. hypothesis but once again this is as i said because i like figuring out how things work and i'm a curious child and right, i like right. overread into everything but um you know, it makes sense that like HBO makes a ton of money off of selling all the Game of Thrones merchandise in addition to mm-hmm. making Game of Thrones, well, that which would is give an the international a little, success. A little added bonus. Right. And if Amazon was able to like set up a pipeline where they're airing, you're watching the show on their website, and then when the episode ends, there are six links to yeah. the stuff you can buy, yeah. be it the original tech comic books or whatever it is. How like, freaked out would you be if there was an Arthur? Character. Freaked out. That's my absolute number one greatest dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my, my greatest aspiration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's all, I mean, that's the weird part is like when you get a part in something like this. You, could, there, you can have your own action figure. Yeah. And, and when they hire you and you sign the contracts, that's part of the contracts because they don't want to like hire you to be an actor, 
have the show be a success and then when they want to make toys off of it right have the guy go like now nah, you can't make toys of me right so they make you sign all that stuff in advance which for, i was happy to do for how many years uh you, you might want some of that merchandising money it, I'm not signing away the rights to make money off of it. Okay. I'm giving them permission to make the stuff that then I can make money off of. If that makes sense. Yeah, well. They just want, there's certain actors who are like, I don't want things made with my likeness. Right. And they don't want that happening. That's what they don't want. Right. You'd always be compensated for it, but they don't want you like putting up a stopgap. You'd have to agree it. to that before they even started filming. I would right, imagine. exactly. Yeah. So, right. That was all in the contract. So there's like a fully executed contract in place that gives them the permission to make as many toys as they want with my face on it for whatever period of time at whatever you know i make one seventeenth of a penny off of each one they make mm -hmm. and you were wearing a the cut was he a, a moth is that he's a moth okay, yeah so you, yeah, were yeah. you in the like the, the moth kind of bodysuit yeah yeah, yeah. Moth filming yeah they they pad it i mean the, the cartoon character he was he was he was a chubby guy but they yeah, just, did yeah. They, no did they didn't I, I mean uh, i gained, i gained a little bit of weight yeah, right. i did i good craft services yeah i right. haven't admitted this that much because i was like um the last thing that like a television studio wants to hear is that the lean act elite actor is trying to get more fat yeah. that's like not a very exciting thing for them to hear but definitely when i got the part i was like okay i want to gain like five pounds like right. i do want to look a little doyer and i did sort of you know it went to my face um and even just the suit i mean uh they didn't pad to make it fatter but i just worked with sort of my body and right. slouching more to make well, it i like, think in that case, especially with a character like arthur he should be clearly unsuperhero right that was the thing like i i don't know if uh, the characters fluctuated yeah. in weight a lot over the years in the mm -hmm. different versions there are times where he's morbidly obese mm -hmm. and there are times where he's just a little round right and i definitely went more for like a little round but the bigger thing for me than like being fat in a binary way was um just the idea that he doesn't look like a superhero yeah right. it's like okay can i just be distinctly out of shape mm -hmm. and so it's like when you see me in the suit i maybe am not as fat as the cartoon character was but i also have zero muscle definition on my arms and legs right which means i look really shitty like i mean the suit's really cool the suit looks great and they did an amazing job on it but i think i look appropriately shitty standing next to the tick who's like all muscles right and is in this like super awesome big blue suit you know and is this huge tall guy but you yeah. feel comfortable in this role like you relate to the role very much so yeah yeah i think it's probably the most i've ever related to you want this to be picked up very badly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're going to yeah. do everything we can to get this picked up. Yeah. That's anyone listening, just, you know, go campaign uh, right into your local senators, <laughs> whatever you have to do. Right directly to Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Right? No, I mean, but, all, I, you know, the way it gets picked up is if uh, people watch if it. People watch it and people you don't like need, it. You don't need Amazon Prime to watch it. No, be up on the main homepage. You'll mm -hmm. need Amazon Prime to watch it if we get the full season, which would mm -hmm. be early next year. Mm -hmm. um, but the pilot will be up in August, and all you have to do is just go to the homepage. It'll be there to watch. And uh, if you like it, uh, tweet about it. I, I don't know. Get the word out, however you want. And if you do that, Griffin will buy you Amazon Prime subscription <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. for the rest yeah. of your life. Yes. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we all get... I mean, I, I still have to pay for my Amazon Prime subscriptions. I don't know if I can pull that off for anyone else. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's really good. I mean, I'm a big fan of the tick. Mm -hmm. so it was pretty surreal for me to get to do it it was surreal for me even when i got the audition 
Yeah. Because I sort of was like, you know, occasionally you'll get the chance to audition for something really big or like a character that you have a past attachment to, you know, mm-hmm. adaptation of something or a remake of something. And I'll be like, oh man, I love this character. Great to play. There's no way they're going to hire me. Mm. But even just when I got the email about the audition, I got sort of got goosebumps and I was like, oh man, I love so, the tick. So like the only thing bigger for you at this point would be a live action Kermit the Frog role. Yeah, if I could work with the Muppets, that would maybe be bigger. But no, I'm I, saying I mean, you as Kermit, oh, me live as action. Kermit? Yeah, 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 maybe that. Although yeah. I'd feel, it maybe feel sacrilegious. That's yeah. the other thing, oh, you know? Okay. Yeah. It's like their characters I love were like, you know, I love Han Solo and they're doing that Han Solo solo movie yeah. right now. The Han Solo solo movie. Right. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, they're doing like a Han Solo spinoff now. Uh, oh. With Alden Ehrenreich uh, playing Han Solo, who's like an amazing actor mm-hmm. and is like an incredible choice because he's not going to just do a Harrison Ford impression. It's right. like uh, the best choice they possibly could have come up with. But like, for example, if I had gotten that part, I'd be like, well, this fucking sucks because I, I know I can't do this. Right, right. Like as a fan, I would be upset if I was playing Han Solo right. <laughs> because I don't match my notion in my head of what Han Solo should be. And maybe you wouldn't want to take it because people would hate you. Yeah, that too. But it also is just like, (laughs) as a fan, it's like, you know, I'm pretty critical of myself and I feel like I know what I can do and I can do well and whatever. And when I like saw Arthur, when I saw the audition, I was like, I do think I'm like the type of that character. Even if I'm a little less. No offense, you definitely make a much better Arthur (laughs) than Han Solo. No, no, I agree. That was was the point. Uh, I was like, you know, I, I feel like if I were watching this impartially, right. I wouldn't be angry that I had been in cast. Mm-hmm. Like, if I was not me, right. I'd be like, that guy looks enough like Arthur. That's fine. He sounds right. like him. It's fine. That's um, good. Yeah. yeah. You know yourself. Yeah. So, it's like a dream to get <laughs> yeah. to play like a superhero and be in a cool thing like this, but also have it be a role that I feel mm-hmm. fits so well. Uh, I think it's going to be good. I, I was really happy making it. I, I, I'm excited to see i feel like it's a no-brainer for it to be picked up i hope you're right yeah Mm -hmm. yeah um i'm feeling very confident that it's going to be picked up but in the meantime just you know uh get get ready to to watch you know i'm excited to watch all your listeners should just set amazon as their home page right now (laughs) and just keep refreshing until august so at some point in august we'll uh tweet about it and watch it yes yes re-release this episode yeah yeah special edition re-release yeah exactly Cool. Man, I feel like we can keep talking. We kind of just skimmed the surface of your uh, very fruitful 27 years. but We, talk, we talked about a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this was within your range of 45 to 90 minutes. Exactly. We, did, yeah. I, we might have even gone, we might have gone over. Wow. We did. 92 okay. minutes. Okay. So. Okay. So I think that's, <laughs> that's where we should cut it off. We don't want to push it too far past 90. Yeah. We're and just on the cusp now. Yeah. We did it. All okay. Right. Thanks for uh, talking to us. Thank awesome. you so much for having me yeah. here. Yeah.